0: have a Bible, please open to Philippians chapter 4. You can find one on your phone. You can find a Bible in the the bench there in front of you. If you'd like to follow along today, Philippians chapter 4, GEPC, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philippians 4 this morning. Well, are you ready? This is our final message to rescue us from AA. Are you ready for deliverance from anxiety addiction? Yes, worries fears, deliverance from anxiety, addiction. Philippians 4 is a, just a great chapter. It is God's cure for worry. And I believe with all of my heart that your habit of worry, your habit of anxiety and emotional upset, are they're doing several things to you. I've listed them in your notes. When you worry, what you're actually doing is you're harming yourself physically. Worry steals your joy. Worry ruins your personality. Worry adversely affects uh, your family and your friendships. And worry hinders your walk with God. So you see in your notes, we've already learned that the root cause of worry is unbelief. You see, deep in your heart, when you worry, uh, rather than saying, God's got this, when you worry, what you're saying is, God doesn't got this. God is not in control of my life. All things really don't work together for good to those who love God. And so Jesus said to his disciples many times, he said, Oh, ye of little faith. But the more we learn about God, and the more we choose to love him, the more our faith and trust will grow, what happens to worry? Then our worry begins to diminish. And so my message uh, today is entitled... The action that brings God's, God's peace. The action that brings God's peace. Would you please stand with me as we read Philippians chapter 4. I'd like to do something we don't normally do. I, I think it is appropriate for today. And so I'd like to back up. We're going to read Philippians 4 uh, verses 1 to 9. And we're going to do that responsively. And so what that means is I'll read verse 1. And then together we read verse 2. And then I'll do verse 3, and uh, so on. And so I'll read the odd-numbered verses, and I'll join you on the even-numbered verses. Now, don't say, uh, we ain't never done it that way before, all right? Because, because I distinctly remember five or six years maybe doing it once before, okay? So uh, here we go. We're going, to, we're going to do it today, and I think it'll be a, a blessing to our hearts to get God's Word to us. Philippians chapter 4, I begin in verse 1. Therefore... My brethren, dearly beloved and longed for. My joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. My dearly beloved, I beseech Yodius and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Good, good. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, Whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. May we pray. Our Father, thank you. Thank you that we hold the very word of God in our hands. Thank you that it shows us the way to heaven, the way to be forgiven of our sins, the way to have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray if there is anyone holding on to the false ways of salvation, of baptism or sacraments or good works, God help them to see who Jesus is as the Son of God who died a sacrificial, substitutionary death for us, rose again from the dead, And he said, because he lives, we also shall live when we put our faith and trust in him. Now, Father, help us as Christians to be able to to follow that action that brings your peace that we might have in our Christian life a peace that passes all understanding. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Here the Apostle Paul is sharing with his his dear friends back in Greece how they can have God's peace in their lives and so he gives one final instruction in verse 9 and he says do do it do it now just just do it And here you thought Nike was the original uh, author of that phrase. Here it's the Apostle Paul 1,900 years ago. So look with me on page 2, and we'll review quickly uh, those instructions that he gave them. He said in verse 1, stand fast in the Lord. That is, be strong to stay faithful when you go through a trial. Be of the same mind in the Lord, verse 2. Be mature to disagree in an agreeable manner. Uh, Number three, rejoice in the Lord. Don't focus on your problems. Focus on a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse five, be gentle with everyone. Live in God's presence. Uh, Verse six, worry about nothing. Pray about everything. And the last instruction of the seven, think good, godly, and wholesome thoughts. Philippians 4.8. Now, before you speak, here is a, a good acrostic for us to be able to remember. Think. Uh, each letter uh, helps us to think. Uh, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? I saw this little plaque at uh, Matt and Nicky's house, my son and daughter-in-law, and asked if I could share it with you. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. In a world where you can be anything, be kind. Be kind, Ephesians 4, uh, 32. And so instead of living in the grip of fear, held by captive, by the chains of anxiety, when we turn our focus from worry, we find God's hand at work in our lives. The God of peace, He comes to our aid. He begins to change us. He begins to relieve our tension. He changes our difficult circumstances. And the more you practice the habit of giving your mental burdens to the Lord in prayer, the more exciting it gets to see how God will handle things that you thought were impossible to do anything about. So worry focuses on the wrong things. We are tempted to worry about the uncertainties of Tomorrow, rather than looking and rejoicing at the great blessings that God has so clearly provided for us today. If you didn't come to this service today, you would have missed that wonderful presentation by the Marines and Brother Jones and, and been thankful and grateful for those who have served our country to give us this freedom. So, what is the action that brings God's peace? The answer is obedience, obedience to God. In verses 6 to 9, Paul shares the ingredients that we need if you want to experience God's peace in your heart and in your life. And he begins to outline them for us. Three ingredients for God's perfect peace. Uh, that is right praying, we saw that in verse 6. Uh, right thinking, we found that in verse 8. And now we get to right living here in verse 9. If you want this peace from God, if you want to experience it, to feel it, there are no shortcuts. Now, if you pray right, and you think right, then it stands to reason that you will live right. Right? Well, wrong. Uh, you are a very complex being made up of intelligence and emotion, spirit and flesh. God, God gave you a free will. You get to choose, and you still have the old sin nature inside of you. So God has given you the ability... You get to choose right over wrong, good over evil, best over better. But you do need to choose. Have you made that decision of your will to say yes to God? Yes to God, to surrender to Him, to obey Him. And Paul says, do it. He says, do it now. He says, do what now? Choose to obey God now. Live for God today. So as we begin to practice the exercises and the disciplines and the teachings of the Word of God in our lives, uh, this is what's going to happen. You, you live what you know is the will of God. And so what, what, do we, what do we do as Christians? If you want to please God, what are some things that you should be doing every week to, to please the Lord? What comes to your mind? Read His Word. All right, read his word. God gave us His Word. Let's read it. Uh, what else? Anne? Ann? Praying, Larry. Give me something. What should we do to please God? Just do right. All right, do right, Elena. Share him, with Share him with others. Share your faith, Jack. Put Him first. All right, put Him first. Come to church. Uh, serve the Lord. Uh, do what you know is right. God is not trying to steal your joy. He is not trying to cut fun out of your life. God is not trying to destroy the fun that we can have. He, he, does, he does not want anyone to become a monk and live secluded, isolated in a monastery in some desert or some mountain. That's not what God wants for us. Jesus said, I want you to have life. I want you to have abundant life that is overflowing and full. Jesus said, blessed or happy are they that hear the word of God and keep it. They do it. The joy of the Lord comes to our heart when we love God and we love living a holy life for his glory. A sinful life is fun, but not for very long. Yes, it gives pleasure for a season. But the Bible says, and you know it well, the way of the transgressor is what? It's hard. The way of the transgressor, it is hard. When you sin, there are consequences. Payday is coming someday. Look with me on page three of your notes. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you wanted to stay and sin will cost you more than you wanted to pay sin will hurt you sin will hurt others more than you could ever imagine the way of the transgressor it's hard it hurts you hurt yourself and you hurt other people you know you can prove this in a matter of of days or weeks you can prove it you can prove the verse how? just do what you want to do just go your own way. Just ignore God's word. Just ignore God's truth and God's laws and you do what you want to do and you're going to discover that there are consequences that will come back and hurt you significantly. Our prisons, our hospitals, our mental wards, crack houses are full of people who are living proof that a life of disobedience to God it's hard. It's rough. It's no fun. It's a life of misery. It's a life of pain. There is no peace. But you're here today to learn God's truth. You're here today to sing praises to God. You can avoid uh, much of that heartache. And with God's help, you can obey God today. So let's do a, let's do a, a little survey here. Some of you are new Christians, and some of you uh, um, uh, are older Christians. How many of you had the opportunity to attend Sunday school when you were a child? Would you raise your hand? Okay, many of you. How many of you had the opportunity to in school when you were young? All right, again, uh, quite, quite a few of you. You have been given Bible knowledge. But here's my question. Is that knowledge showing up in how you are living? Paul tells the Philippians, it's not enough to, uh, to know You need to obey. You need to take action. Uh, There in your notes, you see it in bold. Too many Christians are educated way beyond their level of obedience. How about you? As a Christian, do do you live what you know is true? Isaiah gave us a grave warning. Uh, Wherefore, the Lord said, For as much as the people they draw near me with their mouth... And with their lips they do honor me, but their heart, they have removed their heart far from me. So how do you test spirituality? How do you know if you are a spiritual person? How do you know if you are walking with God? I mean, as a businessman, a carpenter, an office worker, a programmer, a husband, a wife, a, a teenager, a housewife, a grandparent, it's not by how long you've been saved, but by how much of God's word is showing up in your relationships with God and with other people. We have mistaken longevity in the faith with maturity in the faith. Not so. Uh, We've all met some new Christians who are much more spirit-filled than, say, some old saints. So verse 9, let's get to it. What are those things? Verse 9, he says, Those things... Obviously, something that God has given to Paul that he has been teaching them. So there are four things listed here. Let's break them up into pairs. Learned and received, heard and seen. Now these are two different things. You can can learn something and not receive it. When I went to public school, I was taught evolution. I learned it, but I did not receive it uh, because it's not true. All right. One of the things that God gives you when you get saved is, is uh, you lose stupidity. All right, And so I'm glad that uh, I did not receive that. Uh, but just because you learn something doesn't mean you receive it. Uh, last week I preached on Philippians 4 8, right thinking, the battle for your mind. Uh, we looked at a very important verse, Psalm 101.3. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Now I can teach that to you today with some hand signs. And um, uh, the question is, will you receive it? And so I want you to do do that with me now. If you would, just take your pen or pencil and set it down. Now, at the end of the service, when people receive the Lord, I've often said, I I will not point you out. I'll not embarrass you in any way at all. But if you don't participate right now, I will point you out. I will embarrass you in every way I possibly can. So take your pointer finger and stick it up. Everyone, you don't want to be embarrassed. Stick it up. Pick it up, alright? We're, we're gonna learn this verse. Ready? Here we go. So, so I, you can say it with me, I will set no wicked thing, do it twice. Wicked thing, before before, <laughs> before? Uh it didn't work in sign language, they had to reinterpret it. <laughs> before mine eyes. Okay, here we go. Psalm 1013, here we go. i Will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. A little bit faster. Here we go. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. All right, good. You did good. A lot better than the first service. They needed their coffee, I think. Okay, so so you have now, you've learned it. You've learned it. But have you received it? Have you followed it? What do I mean? What I mean is, if you say you will set no wicked thing before your eyes, how about this last week? Did you believe it? Did you practice it? Did you obey it? How many of you, by choice, I'm not talking about things that are out of your control, but by choice, how many of you set wicked things before your eyes this last week? Movies, TV, programs filled with profanity, nudity, adultery, sexual innuendo, magazines, books, music that you know Jesus Christ would not pick up to read or see, and he doesn't want you to pick it up to read it or see it. To receive is to believe it. It's to make it your own. And so the question is, do you have a teachable spirit? I I want God to teach me I want to do more than learn. I want to receive what God is teaching me. Okay, so that's the first pair. The things which you have learned and received, but then he also says heard and seen. How do you hear and see? It's your eyes and your ears. The battle for your mind is lost in two primary ways. What you hear, what you see. The Christians at Philippi, they they didn't have a New Testament. The New Testament had not yet been written. It's being copied. It's being passed around. And so they don't know how to live the Christian life. They need a role model. They need a mentor. They they need an example. And the Apostle Paul was their example. He practiced what he preached. If someone said, well, that standard that Jesus Christ set up is just too high. I could never do that. The Apostle Paul would come along and say, well, what about me? I was with you. I'm made of the same flesh that, that you are made of. Uh, my back bled when I was whipped by the soldiers. My flesh quivered with pain. My muscles cramped in the prison stocks. I knew what it's like to be afraid. I know what it's like to be disappointed. But you saw me. What did I do? Did I moan? Did I complain? Did I quit? Did I give up? No. What did I do when I was with you? What did he do? He sang. At midnight, in prison, bleeding, he and Silas sang praises to God. Brother Mike Van Kirk sang a beautiful song a couple weeks ago about this exact moment that I've just described to you. In a song, God Wants to Hear You Sing by Rodney Griffin of the group called Greater Vision. This is what, what he sang last two weeks ago. Their chains were fastened tight down at the jail that night. Still, Paul and Silas would not be dismayed. They said, it's time to lift our voice, sing praises to the Lord. Let's prove that we will trust him come what may. God wants to hear you sing when the waves are crashing round you, when the fiery darts surround you, when despair is all you see. God wants to hear your voice when the wisest man has spoken and says your circumstances are as hopeless as can be. That's when God wants to hear you sing. Last Sunday morning at the 9 o'clock hour, as we began the first service, my dad had just entered heaven about 24 hours earlier and during the opening song, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. He is, he is gone from this life. He'll not be watching the 9 a.m. service as he had for a year and a half. And a wave of sorrow came on me, and, and my eyes filled with tears, and I couldn't talk. It just gripped my throat. And I tapped Brother Davis in the arm down front, and I, I pointed up, and, and so, what? <laughs> and I choked out. I said, go welcome the visitors. And he came up and he did. And he went back and he led the choir in that song, Just As I Am, with the chorus that was just added a few years ago. And you know, as that choir sang that chorus last Sunday morning, it was the Holy Spirit who came upon me and he gave me the strength I needed for those morning services. Yes. Here's what they sang. I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ, the Lamb. And I'm welcomed with open arms. Praise God, just as. I am you know in the last couple of weeks several of our church members have had moms and dads enter God's presence Bob Varner's dad last Sunday at noon and you know what happened those who have been saved they, they, they left this life to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord and God with open arms received them and we say with the songwriter praise God praise God Now, let's pull this all together. Uh, Paul said to these Christians, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, I want you to do it. I want you to do it. Well, what did they learn from Paul? Uh, What did they see him do? Well, they learned more than doctrine. They learned how to please God. They learned how to live out Christ before a hostile world. They saw through Paul that God loved lost people and that they were to love them as well. They learned compassion for widows. They learned a zeal for holiness. They learned service to Christ. And just so we don't misunderstand here, when I say service to Christ, uh, that means when you serve people. That means when you change a diaper in the nursery, you're serving Christ. Uh, that means when you, you pick some weeds uh, or pick up some trash off the floor, you're serving Christ. When you greet someone, when you sing in the choir, when you teach the teens, you teach the children, you help out in Awanas, whatever you do, that is serving Christ. And this is what, this is what the Apostle Paul showed them by his life. Did they see Paul with a bud light in his hand and a marijuana joint between his lips? Did they hear cursing come out of his mouth? Uh, did they see him consume with worldly hobbies? No. What did they hear with their ears? What did they see with their eyes? Well, they saw a godly Christian. Not a perfect man. They saw a godly Christian. Look with me on page four of your notes. A marks of a godly Christian. If you go to Acts chapter 16, that's the record when Paul was in Greece in Philippi. This is what they saw. They saw him faithful in worship. Public worship. They didn't ask, where's Paul this Sunday? I don't see him. Oh. I mean his chariot. Yeah, he had to work on his chariot. Uh, The uh, shock absorbers weren't working so good. He had to change the wheel. Uh, Oh, uh, he just needed a break. I mean, this guy, he's been working overtime for a month, working on those tents. He just needed to get away. No. The Apostle Paul was faithful in worship. He was there all the time. He didn't miss church ever. A servant's heart. Jesus said, the greatest among you is what? The servant Paul was a team player, not a lone ranger. And then a sacrificial spirit. He was willing to sacrifice his time. He's willing to sacrifice his money, his labor, his physical comfort uh, to serve Christ and get the gospel to them. And then a joyful spirit. Uh, He was beaten, thrown in prison. What did he do? He sang. He sang. And then we see a bold witness for Christ. I mean, when you're in prison, you kind of want to keep the prison guard happy. What did he do? He gave him the gospel. He led him to Christ. And the Philippian jailer got saved. And then we see his his integrity and his backbone. Do you know what? When the magistrates found out that he is a Roman citizen, they said, oh, 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 let him go. Let him go because we might get in trouble. And so they came down and they opened the door and they said, Paul, you're free to go. He said, no, no way. You tell the mayor, you tell the city council to come down here and invite us to leave. They beat us publicly in the afternoon. They arrested us that all could see, put us in prison. They're not going to ask us to leave quietly. You tell them to come down here, apologize publicly, ask us to leave, and if they say the magical word, please, we'll go. You say, why did he do that? He didn't do it out of pride. Uh, he did it because he wanted to protect the reputation of the new baby church I mean their founder the founding pastor has been falsely accused falsely beaten falsely imprisoned and that would reflect badly in the church and so those public officials came down he had backbone he had backbone and they apologized and that protected the reputation of the new church and then we see he is a good example and about a hundred other things too Now, Paul added one more thing that will bring God's peace, and that is obedience. You know all of these things. You got to do it. You need to do it, verse 9. Do it now. Stop wasting time. Stop making excuses. You know better. Just do it. It reminds me of James there in your notes. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. What, What is it? To him it's a sin. James also wrote, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. You can say you love God, you can say you're a Christian, but if it doesn't show up, uh, there's no evidence. So there we go. Right praying, right thinking, right living. Now is the time to serve God doesn't matter if you're young or old doesn't matter if you're a new Christian or an old Christian we're to have an urgency about serving God everyone is to love God so much that they want to live for him and serve him no matter what age they are, young or old as we were looking for pictures of my dad I came across this one Um, not of my dad but it's either my brother or myself I'm not quite sure actually it is me, it's not my brother uh, when I was a young teenager, Steve and I had a, We were given a beautiful but very unruly dog. We called him Rusty, a golden retriever. I think we missed the window when he was growing up uh, for training. When we got him, he was a strong-willed, like a stubborn kid. Uh, he was nothing but one big muscle without any restraint. Forty years ago, a choke chain... Uh, choke collar was pretty common when you walked a dog that needed restraint. Didn't work on Rusty, not at all. His neck muscles were so strong it had no effect on him. Uh, I did not take him for a walk; he took me for a jog. Uh, he pulled me as fast as he wanted to go, went wherever he wanted to go. I mean, this this dog did not learn obedience, and it got him in a lot of trouble. Uh, this is Bob. Blum's Dog Gunny. Uh, this is a British black lab. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful dog. Have, have you, you know, there's all these different kind of mixes. Have you ever heard of a Labradoodle? Anybody here have a Labradoodle? We had, we had one in the early service. Honestly, do you think a dog should be called a doodle? <laughs> a doodle it's bad enough to be a poodle but to be called a doodle now there are multiple variations you can breed breed a miniature schnauzer and a miniature poodle and they call them schnoodles and some affectionately call them schnoodle doodles you can breed a welsh terrier and a poodle and it's called a woodle If you have a Woodle, you'd be better off having a cat. I mean, really, (laughs) who wants to have a dog called a Woodle? Okay, back to Gunny. I mean, this is a man's dog. Uh, he is a British black lab. Uh, this dog is trained in obedience, and he is, he is a joy uh, to be around. He's been around church and school here, day camp. Uh, so for four years, through Mark Horne Ministries, Bob Blum has given 135 demonstrations with Gunny, schools, churches, events, demonstrating Gunny's obedience. And then he talks about how important it is for us. To obey the Lord ourselves. This year, Gunny has, has talked or taught over thirty. That would be something if we had a talking dog, talk, huh? <laughs> Gunny has taught over thirty-five hundred people the blessing of obedience, and Gunny is a blessing to others. Gunny doesn't need a leash. Gunny doesn't need a choke collar. Why? He chooses to obey because he loves his master. You know what his master does? His master feeds him. His master cares for him. His master gives him a nice, warm place to sleep. His master loves him. Out of love for his master, Gunny obeys, and then Gunny is a blessing to others. I think we all, I think we all can learn a blessing, a lesson of obedience from Gunny. The question is, do you love your master? the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that your master feeds you? Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, your master gives you a warm place to sleep at night. Uh, your master takes care of you. Your master loves you. Uh, your master, he, he gives your heart to beat another time today. Your master gives your breath in your lungs. Everything you have is from your master. You don't need to be on a leash from God the Father. You get to roam free. But if you love your master, then won't you obey your master? Gunny doesn't need a choke collar. He doesn't need a, a, a leash. He just walks with his master. He wants the presence of his master. He wants to be close to him. And he wants to obey him out of love. How much more should we obey our God out of love? So what does obedience bring? Well, verse 9 tells us uh, those things which he have learned and received and heard and seen to me. He says, do it. Now, here's the promise, great promise. The God of peace shall be with you. The promise of God being with us is the promise, it's more than merely feeling his presence, but includes the experience of his favor, his blessing, his guidance, his protection. His constant power to help us to do whatever needs to be done. So I want to ask you, are you you living with God's peace today? Now lest we misunderstand, there is peace with God and there's the peace of God. The peace with God is what happens when you become a Christian. You see, if you're trusting in baptism and sacraments and good works and being a good person, your sin is still here. But the moment you say, Jesus died for me on the cross, Jesus rose again. He offers the gift of eternal life. And then when you are humble enough to say, God, will you please forgive me for my sins? If you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. At that moment that you become a true Christian, you have peace with God. And so every Christian has peace with God. The war is over. We're part of God's family. Peace with God. But what he's talking about here is the peace of God. It's that sense that God calms your spirit. He calms your spirit. You you sense his presence. Everything's okay because you know God is in control. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, the God of peace, shall be with you. This is the offer that God makes to you today. There in your notes, begin to live in obedience to Christ and you will experience his perfect peace. I can't describe it to you, but you can experience perfect peace. May we pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the Son of God, our Savior. Thank you for this great chapter that helps that helps guide us in the daily decisions of our life to give our worries to you, to turn that worry list into a prayer list and begin to experience your peace. Now, Father, I pray you would, would show us how to walk in obedience to the Word of God, the truth of God, the will of God. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, as we show respect to the neighbor beside us, I want to ask you two questions. The first is, do you have this peace with God? Are you a part of the family of God? Have you been saved? The Bible says, born again. Was there a time in your life that you invited Jesus Christ to become your Lord and Savior? Maybe you don't know the date, Oh, but you remember the moment when you asked for that forgiveness and you asked Jesus Christ to become your Lord and Savior. If you had that confidence, that assurance, that peace, that peace with God that you're going to heaven, that you know you're going to heaven, you got a Bible reason, would you simply slip your hand up all over, all over, just for a moment, up and down. God bless you. Thank you. You may put your hands down. You say, Pastor, I I think I'm going to heaven. I... I hope I'm going to heaven, but I'm not sure. I have doubts. I did as a 15-year-old teenager. I didn't know if heaven was my home. I began attending church, but that didn't change the fact that I only knew about God, but I didn't know Him in a personal way. And so this morning, I want to invite you to believe the Bible To receive God's promise it's not about joining a church it's not about getting baptized it's not about trying to be good it's about a relationship with the God who loves you he gave you a free will but he also gave us the truth that heaven can be yours if you will choose to become a follower of Christ say pastor what does that mean what that means is you understand that your sin will keep you out of heaven And when you call upon the Lord and ask for his forgiveness, believing that Jesus died for you, he'll forgive your sins. The Holy Spirit of God will live inside of you and give you the assurance and peace that heaven is your home. You can do what I did many years ago as a teenager. In a closing invitation prayer, I prayed. I prayed. I'll give you that prayer and you can pray it as well. You must pray earnestly and sincerely. You can even pray silently. God will hear the prayer of your heart. But if you want to get this settled today, if you, if you sense the tapping of the Holy Spirit on your heart, it's your day to say yes to God. Pray with me now. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that He died for me and that He rose again. Today, I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Please save me today. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I want to pray for you today. Again, I will not embarrass you in any way. I just simply want to pray for you. If you just prayed with me to the Lord, would you simply raise your hand, hold it up high for a moment. I want to say to you, welcome to the family of God. Anyone at all, I just pray with you and I meant it from my heart. Just hold your hand up high for a moment. Christian, may I ask you, do you have God's peace in your life? Are you experiencing The peace of God that passes all understanding. If not, today you can say yes to God. You can give that worry, that fear to God. Maybe there's something you're doing that you need to stop doing. Maybe there's something you're not doing that you need to start doing. God says, you do it, you do, you do it and I will give you my peace. May you bless in this invitation. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. As we stand together, we're going to sing a song of invitation. Let's stand together. Jesus paid it all is the song. As we sing, if you have a question, it's a public invitation, just step out. and Talk to one of our pastors, pastor's wives. Christian, if you want to pray at the altar, pray in your seat. It's a time to meet with God, a time to say, to say yes to God as we sing together, I hear the Savior say. Right, if you have a Bible, please turn to Second Samuel chapter 2 tonight. Second Samuel. Yes, tonight we begin a new chapter in David's life, truly a new era in a new book, 2 Samuel. Tonight we are introduced to David the king. Finally, finally, we've now come to the halfway point in our study of David's life. It is a good place to stop and take a a panoramic view of things. David is about 30 years old, and he is finally anointed king in Hebron, a city in the south of Israel. Uh, Last week I prayed in the morning through the last half of Psalm 78, and those closing three verses summarize David's life. Uh, He chose David, also his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Verses 70 to 72. You know, all of David's 70 years of life are wrapped up in these three verses out of the Psalms. God chose David when he was about 15 years old. He took him from the sheepfolds. He went into battle and killed Goliath the giant. He left the sheep. Between the ages of 15 and 30, David went from being a soldier to the son-in-law of the king to fugitive, running for his life from the king. Finally, now here at the age of 30, we come to the pinnacle moment in his life when he takes the throne in Israel. What happened? What happened? God brought him to feed Jacob, his people, and Israel. How? According to the integrity of of his heart and he guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Now for the first fifty years of David's life, for the most part, he walked in the integrity of his of his heart. He had a few moments in the flesh, but most of David's young adult years were years of triumph. Then came the tragedy of the last twenty years of his life. The first large part of his life is a he is a model of character, a model of integrity. And the last two decades he had many spiritual defeats. 1 Samuel 31, it ends with King Saul dying in battle. First he was wounded, and then he fell on his own sword in suicide. Why did he take his life? King Saul took his life because he was so consumed with self and selfishness. He was more worried about what others would think than what God himself would think. 2 Samuel 1 opens with an Amalekite coming to David uh, there at Ziklag with King Saul's crown in his hand and a bracelet, a band from King Saul's arm. And he claims to have finished off the king of Israel who was wounded. Did King Saul kill himself after being wounded? Or did the Amalekite perform the act of euthanasia? Commentator Dale Davis says... If you ever have a choice between the biblical narrator and an Amalekite, always believe the biblical narrator. (laughs) Have you ever met an Amalekite you could trust? (laughs) So the Amalekite is telling a lie. He's not telling the truth. And because of that, because he claimed to have taken the life of the Lord's anointed, uh, he is put to death. He is executed. As we read 2 Samuel, we're going to discover this book is not so much about David, but about David's God, the God who keeps his covenant, the God who keeps his promises, even when it appears that the, that the, the God who makes the promises to those who don't deserve them. And that's a lot like us, isn't it? We don't deserve God's promises, but he gives them to us. And so 2 Samuel is more about the faithfulness of God in spite of David's unfaithfulness. Would you stand with me now as I read from 2 Samuel chapter 2? Even though David had moments where he was unfaithful, God was always faithful. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? The Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said unto Hebron. And so David went up hither, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, Nabal's wife of the Carmelite, and his men that were with him, did David bring up every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah, and they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were they they that buried Saul. And David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that ye have shown kindness unto your Lord, even Saul, and have buried him. Now the Lord show you kindness and truth unto you, and I also will requite you of this kindness, because you have done this thing. Therefore now... Let your hands be strengthened and be valiant for your master Saul is dead and also the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. David the king, finally. May we pray. Lord, I ask now that we can learn from the life of David. I pray that you would help us to seek you, to seek your guidance, to seek your power and as we receive your blessings, may those blessings not draw us or tempt us away from you. Minister to each one tonight by your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Someone said, our past is like an art gallery. Walking down the corridors of our memory is like walking through this art gallery. On the walls are all of yesterday's pictures, our home, our childhood, our parents, the heartaches, the difficulties, the joys and triumphs, as well as blessings and abuses. Since Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can take our Savior on a walk down the corridor of the time of our life, and we can ask him to remove the pictures, the paintings, that bring such heartache, those that would be defeating memories. In other words, our Savior knows how to heal the years of heartaches, which the locusts have eaten and remove. He can remove those scenes out of the corridors of our lives. I have them, you have them. We need to let him leave the paintings that bring joy, pleasure, victory, and take down from the walls those things that bring despair, and defeat. David has had a lot of these. David David spent several years on the run from Saul. Twice he went to Gath, not a good decision. Many months or even years living in a cave, discouraged and disillusioned. He had to wonder time and again, does God keep his promises? The man of God promised me that I will be king, but I've never been king. And the years kept rolling on. And finally, at the moment of the greatest distress at Ziklag, I mean, the, uh, the, the wives are taken, the children are taken, precious goods are carried away. And so family is kidnapped. Uh, what's left behind is burned. And so David uh, shows up in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and, and there's nothing but ashes smoldering. And the, and, the, and the men wept until they had no more power to weep. And then they began the blame-shifting. And they said, we're we're in this mess because of our leader, David. And the men spake of stoning David. And it was at that moment, at his lowest point, is he going to die before the night is over? And we find six words. David encouraged himself in the Lord. David encouraged himself in the Lord. And so we begin to learn lessons of faith He learned those lessons of faith as a fugitive. And so we can learn those lessons as well. When you hit your lowest point and no one seems to help you, God will help you. God will help you. You you turn to God. You turn to God with all of your heart. Didn't you like the testimonies? Every time they hit a place of frustration, whether it be the missionary or the missionary team, we stopped, we prayed, and God helped We stopped, we prayed, God help. Six words that you can hang on to when your trials come, when everyone seems to disappoint you. David encouraged himself in the Lord, so can you and so can I. Here's another lesson that he learned. He learned humility. The second lesson I see is is his humility and his sensitivity to the Lord. Uh, King Saul is dead. What is he going to do? And so I like it in verse one. He asked God two questions. And so he says, he says (coughs) uh, through the priest, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord answered, go up. David asked a second question, whither shall I go up? (coughs) And he said, unto Hebron. Now both times David went to Gath, he didn't ask God for direction. He just kind of went ahead on his own. He did it without God. But here he asks, It's a simple thing to do in our lives, but it only comes from a humble heart. How often have we made up our minds about a decision, about a stance, about something we want to do, and we stubbornly dig in rather than honestly ask the Lord, God, God, do you you want me to do this? Do you want me to act this way? Do you want me to respond this way? How should I respond? Please guide me in this decision. Guide me. And so what What I find, there are two things here. One, we need to ask God which way to go. We need to ask God what decision to make. Secondly, if you've already made up your mind, then what's the use in asking him? It's just a formality. It's fake. David does not charge ahead foolishly and say, okay, well, the old king is dead. It's my turn. Everyone says it's my turn. I should just go uh, to Jerusalem and become the new king. How do we apply this to us today? God does not speak to us audibly. He does not speak out loud to his children. He speaks through the word of God. Read the word of God. As you read the word of God and you pray to the Lord, he will whisper through the Holy Spirit of God with promptings. He'll give you peace. He'll give you good counsel. Uh, You might be in a situation where you are wondering, well, God has obviously opened this door, and I'm about to walk through it, but you need to ask ask is this what i should do approach the decision approach your determination with humility we want to race in because we see some kind of benefit for me sometimes it's best to begin quietly and to pace our first steps with great care david asked should i go up if i should go up where should i go hebron Uh, Hebron is David's first capital. Uh, Here's the building. The building is built over the cave of the patriarchs. It is honored as the burying place of Abraham and Sarah, Jacob, and Leah. Uh, Most Holy Land tours do not include Hebron. Uh, Do we have anyone here tonight who's been to Hebron? Would you raise your hand? Okay, as I said, most Holy Land tours do not include Hebron. Uh, When I went with my college group in 1978, we actually had the opportunity to go there. Uh, People don't go there today because it is unsafe. I believe Stan Hess uh, was, uh, was in that area. And if you heard the story, he was flying hot air balloons in Israel and he was with another pastor and uh, we get the uh, message that uh, uh, there's some shelling and bombing from the Gaza Strip and, and uh, so they, they woke up and, and the hotel was deserted. Just Stan Hess and the pastor. And they look around, everybody's gone. Why are they gone? Well, because of the bombing coming in. I, I guess that's a benefit of when you get older, you just can't hear the bombs that are being uh, shelled down upon you. And everyone had fled to the bunkers, and uh, they did not fly. I think that would be, I, I I know the Arabs have a hard time hitting their target, but a higher balloon is kind of a big target uh, to hit. So so Stan's the only other one, I think, in our church that has, has been there. But they built the mosque, they built the building over top of those caves. Here's a picture of the tomb of Abraham. Uh, we don't know for certain if his remains are in here, but we do know that he and Sarah were buried in the caves of Machpelah in Hebron. Isaac and Rebekah were also buried here, Genesis 25, 5, and 6. Uh, The mosque is most likely built over the actual place, over the actual caves. Ancient Jewish legend says that Adam and Eve were also buried here. But I kind of think the flood would have probably washed away any remains left at that point. David learned another lesson. He learned to wait on God. Uh, he learned uh, to be able to uh, wait on God. And so uh, we, see, we see that in verses 3 and 4. And his men were with him. Uh, did David bring the household? They dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Verse 4, the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Down to verse 11. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So he is only king over the southern portion of the kingdom. How long? Seven and a half years. (laughs) God's timing is not always our timing. We want it done yesterday. We want the door to open up now for what we want to be able to do. Uh, We want that job. We want that stuff. uh, We want that this or that right away. Waiting can be hard work, right? And he had to wait. Now, during this time, there were some other satellite kings, some self-appointed hotshots who had been riding on Saul's coattails, waiting to make their move. But David, he waited patiently. He let the Lord take care of them. And so he ruled from Hebron, knowing that he had the ability to rule the whole kingdom, but not until it was God's time. And we don't always like God's time, but God's time is always best. But while he was there, David made some decisions He lived to regret. Turn over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, we begin in verse 1. Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And unto David were sons born in Hebron, and his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, his second, Chiliab, of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, and the third Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur; the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggith; and the fifth uh, Shephatiah, the son of Abital; and the sixth Ithream, by Iglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron during this seven-year period. And so what we see here is is this is not just an uninteresting genealogy, but it is insight into David's weakness of his character. And so David makes some mistakes as new king. And the first mistake we see is that he committed committed polygamy. What does that tell us? Uh, David didn't just have six children in Hebron. He had six children by six different wives. This polygamy is a dark spot on David's life and it would later come back to haunt him we count six wives not to mention Michael which is King Saul's daughter which Saul gave uh, the wife Michael to another man 2 Samuel 5 and 1 Chronicles 3 tells us that David had many other wives and he had many concubines and so we count them all up we count them all up we've got 20 sons can say well that was the custom of the day that's what those kings did to make peace treaties they would, they would marry the, uh, the king's daughter from another country and, and that would ensure peace between those countries well that, that can be part of it but that surely is not the whole story and so if the scholars count correctly there they are 20, 20 different sons one daughter Tamar and he had a number of nameless concubines In chapter 4, some traitors kill Saul's fourth son, Ishbosheth, and now there's no king in the north. So let's jump ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Again, verses 1 to 5. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron. Again, this is seven and a half years into his, his rule and reign. And spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh, Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, thou wast he that lettest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord said to thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. This is over all Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel (coughs) and all Judah. David makes Jerusalem his headquarters. David is God's anointed leader. David has great blessing from God. He has great blessing power from God. Uh, Let's pick it up in in verse 6. And the king and his men (coughs) went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, uh, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Nevertheless David took the stronghold of Zion, that's Jerusalem. The same is the city of David, and it is known That, by that term, for the next 3,000 years. And David said on that day, Whosoever uh, getteth up the gutter and smiteth the Jebusites and the lame and the blind uh, that are hated of David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Wherefore they said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David dwelt in the ford and called it the city of David. And David built round about from Milo and inward. And David went on and grew great. And the Lord God of hosts was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. And David perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted the kingdom for his people Israel's sake. Just recently, they are 99% sure they have found David's palace in the city of David. They thought it was over here, they thought it was over here, and now they say, this is where it is. But you got to come back if you want to see a picture of that. David's palace in Jerusalem. David makes Jerusalem his headquarters. He is the anointed king, and God just begins to bless and bless. David's cup begins to overflow with the blessings from heaven. Few kings have known such remarkable power and blessing. Historian G. Frederick Owen writes this, Everything favored national prosperity for Israel. There was no great power in Western Asia inclined to prevent her becoming a powerful monarchy. The Hittites had been humbled, and Egypt, under the last kings of the 21st dynasty, had lost her prestige and had all but collapsed. The Philistines were driven to a narrow portion of their old dominion, and the king of Tyre sought friendly alliance with David. With a steady hand, David set to force back and defeat Israel's enemies who had constantly crowded, horned, and harassed the Hebrews. Moab and Ammon were conquered. Then the Edomites, alarmed at the ever-increasing power of Israel, rose against David but were routed by Abishai, who penetrated uh, to Petra and became master of the country." Commercial highways were thrown open, and in came merchandise, culture, and wealth from Phoenicia, Damascus, Assyria, Arabia, Egypt, and more distant lands. To his people, David was king. David was judge. David was general. But to the nations round about, he was the leading power in all the Near Eastern world, the mightiest monarch of the day. It is a lot of power for any leader to handle, especially for a man as passionate as David. Very few can be trusted with that kind of power because it comes with unique temptations that very few can handle. We've all heard the phrase before, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And even though the hand of God was with David, he was still a man. He could still be given to failure. But here comes the blessings on David and the accomplishments are amazing. He expanded the boundaries of Israel from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. It's incredible. He set up extensive trade routes that reached throughout the known world. And from that, wealth just continued to come into Israel like the nation had never known before. David unified the nation under Jehovah God. He created a national interest in spiritual things. Now, he is is not a priest, he is a king, but he lifted up the role of the priesthood so that Judaism could flourish openly and freely in the land. He destroyed all the uh, idol altars, tore them down. David was a remarkable man. He is a brilliant organizer, a brilliant manager, a brilliant planner. He is savvy on the battlefield, he stayed on the cutting edge of military warfare. We look to the Word of God, and he wrote 75 of our 150 psalms. Amazing love for God. Now, next time, we will look at some of the heartbreaking disappointments of his life. We can all learn from David. We can learn that every blessing we have is from God. We learn that God gives his blessings in his time. We learn, we learn that the trials of life are to grow our faith and our character. We learn that there is a temptation when the blessings come. The temptation is that we become so enamored with his blessings that we forget God. So in these opening chapters of 2 Samuel, we see see David, the king, finally being greatly blessed. But those blessings then became a temptation to him. Now, I I want all of us to be thankful for our blessings, but I want us to be able to identify what blessings can be a potential stumbling block and what temptation they can become for us, and then to learn how we can protect ourselves from those temptations. So, so, So give me a blessing tonight, and then tell me how that blessing can turn into a temptation to pull you away from God. The praise of men. Praise of men. So you do something, you do something, and, and, and people praise you, they compliment you, and the, praise, and the temptation then is pride. God hates pride. God resistes uh, the the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Something else, a blessing that can come to you, that then can turn into a a temptation. Living in America, uh, living in America. Uh, do, you, do you think uh, do you think Corey Ten Boom and her dad and her sister prayed fervently every night, knowing that the Nazis are seeking to be able to find people just like them? and ship them to concentration camps. They didn't have freedom. They were in those, they, they called them the ghettos. And that term has, has stuck all the way here to America. Here we are living in America, we had those Marines. Uh, I don't know if your eyes are good enough to read, but uh, that, that, uh, that knife, that decorative knife that was given had the Marine symbol If you read, it had something like uh, be kind to everyone and then kill them. (laughs) So I didn't want to read that to you this morning. Uh, But but those guys are protecting us. We don't think too much about about safety because we already have it. Corey Ten Boom and millions of others They pray fervently to God because they don't have what we have. So living in America, prosperity, freedom, safety makes us apathetic. The world doesn't have that. A billion Chinese don't have that. Nearly a billion in India don't have that. Another blessing God gives to us that can turn into a temptation. Dave. A a great job that pays well. All right, a great job that pays well. In In fact, if I just work a little bit more, If I work some overtime, if I work some overtime, then I'll get even more money and I can can do more things with my money. And all of a sudden, the job becomes an idol. The job can pull you away from your family. And we're gonna see that's exactly what happened to David. I mean, how do you manage 21 children and a dozen wives and concubines? He didn't manage them well. So his public success is outward, but his, his family life is going to be a disaster. When your son tries to kill you, that's not a good day. It's not a good day. So he had, he had great success in his career, and the temptation was to ignore the family. Another blessing that uh, can turn into a temptation. Yes, Greg? Greg? Yes, so a talent that the world admires, and that's back to the praise of men. I mean, I was just, I, I was just envious and jealous of Randy up here playing that uh, washboard. Let me tell you, I thought <laughs> I could do that. And afterwards, everyone's gonna say, pastor, you did a great job playing that washboard. <laughs> how about the musical instruments? How about the sports? How about, how about the, uh, the voices or the teaching uh, gift that you might have? so many things. Where did you get the gift from? Where did the talent come from? It came from God. Who, who are we to boast in anything that we can do when it was a gift to us from God? Right. Temptation, a blessing that can turn into a temptation. Anyone in the balcony have anything? A blessing that can come that can end up being a temptation. Uh, because the lights, I need you to kind of wave Yes. Lead somebody to the Lord. All right, leading, how can leading somebody to the Lord turn into a temptation? All right, uh, you lead someone to the Lord, and the temptation is you think, well, look look, look what I can do. No, we just plow and plant and water. And God gives the increase. Uh, he gets all the credit and glory for it, and that can be a temptation of pride as well. Doing something good can become a temptation, a pride that can pull you away uh, from the Lord himself. Yes? The healing power of God. The healing power of God. Uh, Hezekiah uh, was, was told, you're going to die. You're going to die. The prophet came and said, Hezekiah, you're going to die. And, and just that quick, the prophet leaves, and Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and says, God, haven't I been a good king? Uh, yes, you have. Uh, could you extend my life? Yes. And so God heals him. And before the prophet leaves, God says, hey, I have changed my mind. Calvinists hate this passage. Go back and tell Hezekiah, uh, you've got 15 more years to live. And even though God gave him 15 more years, uh, he made a foolish decision and invited the enemy to come in and see all the wealth that they had. And, and that ended up becoming a curse to them, and his son uh, suffered the consequences of that. What you have, even health, even life, it's a gift from God. Use it for him. Yes? What about having a new home or needing to work on your yard or do, where you stop going to church or make excuses because you have to do your house? Okay. Uh, just living life in America having a, having a house getting a new place and I got to work on it it's a fixer-upper or, or I've got to do the yard work and, and, and uh, boy, I just can't make it out to Sunday night can't make it out to Wednesday night uh, I don't have time for my devotions where you take stuff and stuff becomes a blessing that pulls you away from God that's sad isn't it that's, this is what happened to David yes okay our relationships a a friend a loved one uh, they can become an idol and that can be true of of immediate family extended family anything you put before God and that relationship with God becomes an idol that's an idol okay some good thoughts tonight last one John Money. money how can money how can money be a blessing that becomes a temptation to take you away from God Many ways, huh? The love of money is the the root of all kinds of evil, and so uh, hoarding it, hoarding it, that's a temptation. Uh, spending it selfishly, that's a temptation. You know, we got a building fund. We have we have a lot of uh, we have a lot of elderly people, and if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of people that are squeezed together too tight, and we need to open things up. And if you say, "Well, you know, God gave me this money," well, He gave you the money that you might be able to be a blessing to other people. And I think of how our building uh, program cannot just be used to reach more people in the future, but to help the blessing of our elderly people now uh, so they don't get jostled around. So take your money and say, it's not my money. It's God's money. God's money. Jesus said, lay up treasure in heaven. Invest souls being saved. Okay, some great thoughts uh, to think about tonight. So look at the blessings that God gives you, because every blessing you have is from God, and don't let that blessing, don't let that blessing be something to draw you away from God as it did with David. Father, thank you for our time tonight. In your word, thank you for all what we've heard, uh, both by way of music and testimony and participating in our worship tonight. Now I pray that our hearts would be tender. May the Holy Spirit of God help us to have grateful hearts for the blessings we have, but then not let those blessings become a temptation to become a stumbling block to pull us away from you. Speak to our hearts